0: like I said, we are continuing through Matthew as we have been teaching, and the last two weeks were two really big stories out of the book of Matthew. One was John the Baptist was beheaded, very heavy week, and Michael apologized for the um, potentially hard conversations that parents had to have with their kids as we just dove right into a very difficult passage and followed after the news of John the Baptist being beheaded was Jesus feeding the 5,000. And we know that that 5,000 really very well could have been 10,000, 15,000 people. And as we look at tonight's passage the passage that we're gonna read happens really quickly after those other two passages. So it's just important to know where we were at, how that's going to inform where we're going tonight. So if you have your Bibles or you wanna read on the screen, tonight we are starting in Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22. I'm just gonna go ahead and read the whole passage. Immediately, so we know immediately, and sorry, <laughs> we start the passage, I, I stop us immediately. Um, <laughs> Immediately meaning uh, Jesus had just fed the 5,000 and everyone was amazed. So now, immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, the other side of the sea, while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary or adverse. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, Jesus came to the disciples, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking (laughs) on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage. It is I, do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. So as we consider this passage as a whole, you've probably heard this passage lots of times. Jesus walks on water, Peter walks on water, Peter doubts, he sinks. When we take a a closer look at this passage, we can understand that when Jesus first sent all of the people out into a boat, into the, or all the people, the disciples, into a boat away from the crowds. In our passage here in Matthew, we don't really have a reason for that. We don't really know why. All we know is that Jesus decided, it's time to get these disciples, get my people away from these crowds. And so if you think about it, as we kind of consider the last two big passages that I talked about, Jesus learned that his good friend John the Baptist has died. That is a very devastating thing that happened to Jesus. And actually what happened in between that passage, before he went to feed the 5,000, he was on his way already to be secluded, to go off on his own. But it was when he saw all of the people that he felt overcome by compassion that then he decided to stop and heal these people, feed them, meet their needs right where they were at. So you can already think about the fact that Jesus had plans already. He was on his way to go be secluded, to walk away from the situation. Uh, You could maybe even wonder to mourn the loss of his friend. If we're stringing these passages, if we're reading these three kind of stories pretty closely together, it's safe to assume that Jesus learned the news and on his way to leave, he saw the big crowd of people And then he decided to heal them and feed them. Imagine how long it's gonna take 12 disciples to feed 10 or 15,000 people. And so then, after all of that, you can imagine, Jesus is, he's exhausted. He needs time to reset, he needs time to be alone. Um, And then we just have this idea of this immediately. Get the disciples away from the crowd. And so what we can actually do is get a little bit more context for the story when we look at Mark's telling of the story as well as John's telling of the story. So this isn't found in Luke's gospel, but it is found in Mark and John. And if we read in John uh, chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, I'll just go ahead and read it for you guys. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So what happens in John's account is we see that the people, after Jesus performed this miracle of feeding with very few food, just multiplying it for the masses, they're like, this is the guy we've been waiting for. He is the prophet who is to come, who is to save us, And so Jesus is getting this feeling, oh, they're actually here to try and put me on my throne as king. And he is not interested in that. So if the crowds, just imagine, if you can picture the picture that Michael put up last week, like think of a stadium, you know, thousands and thousands of people. And they're all like, that's the guy, make him king. Jesus is like, we gotta get out of here. This is not the plan. This is not what I wanted to do. I had no intention to make myself king in this moment and in this way. And so you could wonder, maybe the disciples were like, hey, this is kind of nice. Look at these miracles that Jesus is doing. Let's bask in it. Let's stay. Yes, Jesus, aren't you the king? Like, declare yourself as king to take over, to bring down Rome, establish yourself as the king that we've been waiting for. Um, But we know that Jesus had no intention to become king by force of hand, but by faith in his blood. And so we have this additional detail from John that is helpful to understanding what is going on here in our passage. Mark also, in his story, um, he has all sorts of things that he's connecting, um, certain details that he's adding that aren't in any of the other gospels. He mentions that when Jesus was walking on the water, he was going to walk past the disciples, past the boat, which is just like illuminating all the passages and about Moses wanting to see the glory of God. And Yahweh said, I'll pass by you. That's all you can catch a glimpse of my glory. So it's very interesting when we kind of compare these three stories Each have their own details that they're adding, that they're leaving out. And actually, Matthew's passage is the only one that talks about Peter also walking on the water. The passages in Mark and in John leave out Peter completely. So this is just a helpful way, as we are reading through the book of Matthew, just one of those kind of biblical study things to put in your back pocket as we're reading these passages, that there are very intentional, purposes and differences when we come across different stories uh, and different details that are added or left out with the different gospel writers. And so at the base level, you can just assume, well, naturally the stories are going to be different. If I asked four people in this room to tell me the plot of the story of Star Wars, I'm going to get four very different answers, very different stories. I, I might have one person who's just like honing in on R2-D2 because they're like, he's the best, R2-D2 is the best, I'm going to tell you every single random detail about R2-D2, and you're like, all right, that is like kind of important, but for whatever reason, you have, you have a purpose as to why you're going to highlight R2-D2. Someone else is maybe really going to focus on the relationship between Luke and Vader, and we're really going to see that highlighted and how they're summarizing the whole story of Star Wars. Maybe someone's really going down the Mandalorian route, and they're just like, listen, you got to watch the Mandalorian. So at the base level, you can just understand for eyewitness accounts, we're gonna get different details that are added or left out. But at a much deeper level, it's even more important to understand that the four gospel writers have their purposes in what they're adding, what they're highlighting, and why they're adding those things. And so if these stories are very intricately woven into the whole narrative of the scriptures, they're highlighting different things from the Old Testament and there's a reason why they're doing those things. So we don't wanna spend all of our time talking about how John told the story or how Mark told the story, although those are very interesting conversations to have. Tonight we're talking about how Matthew told the story. And so it helps to just read Oh, what did the other gospel writers say? You know, we have a reason as to why Jesus felt the need to get the disciples away from the people and from the crowds, because we can understand oh, it was because they were trying to inaugurate his kingdom in a way that he wasn't ready to do just yet. But uh, Matthew decides to highlight some other things, and that's where we're going to head next. So back to our passage. Jesus has ushered away the disciples, put them onto a boat, sent them into the sea. There isn't really a destination apart from go to the other side. So Jesus has commanded them to do something they don't really know what, but Jesus has now stepped away to go up to a mountaintop to pray. So typically when Jesus is praying, he is alone, it's nighttime, the disciples are removed from him And they probably are at a point where they aren't really understanding his mission or his goal or what he's doing. And Jesus is probably facing some sort of formative decision or crisis. Or, like I mentioned before, maybe he just needs some time away to recharge from the emotional roller coaster of losing his friend, the physical toll that it took to do all of those miracles, to feed all of those people, and he just needs some peace and quiet. So the fact that he went up on a mountaintop is also very interesting. This is one of those times where when we hear on a mountaintop, we want that to kind of illuminate some other ideas of what would that mean? What's the, um, what's the concept of being on a mountaintop? That's actually a theme that's really uh, interesting and helpful When we're reading through scripture, it's loaded with all sorts of imagery. Mount Zion is described as being on a mountaintop, meaning Jerusalem or a temple. They're on mountaintops. And a lot of times the Mount Zion temple Jerusalem is actually connected with Eden being described as uh, being on a mountaintop based off of how it's connected to Zion. Ezekiel calls Eden... The garden of God and a holy mountain of God. Um, Even when you think about Moses, uh, most of the time Moses is speaking to Yahweh, he's on a mountaintop. It could be the burning bush, it could be um, Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. And so these sorts of instances where people are on a mountaintop it is an instance where there's going to be some sort of communion with Yahweh. That's most often what it is. We have people who intercede on mountaintops. We have people who receive information, a word from God on mountaintops. We have people, kings, who will sit on their throne, rule on mountaintops. So we have kind of the imagery of prophet, priest, king, all aligning on a mountaintop. So this is just a little aside that when you see something, you read something that happens on a mountaintop, think about, okay, so what are some other things that have ha- happened on mountaintops and how does that inform the story that I'm reading? And so what, how that helps us in our story today is that this is a very sacred moment. He's interacting with the Father. He mentions twice that he's by himself and that he's alone. Jesus isn't trying to display any sort of devotion to Yahweh publicly, he's not trying to show everyone like, hey look, look at me, I'm talking to the Father. He did this in quiet, he did this by himself. And he understands that after a really long and exhausting day, couple of days, that he needs the restoring peace that can only be found in the quiet presence of the Father. So when we go back to the disciples on the boat, in verse 24 uh, mentions that it was the fourth watch of the night. I don't know if that means anything to you, means nothing to me, (laughs) Uh, but what we can learn um, in historical study is that the Roman military divided the night into four sections, three hour sections, um, four of them total. And so the evening started at 6 p.m. and it ended at 6 a.m. So that's gonna be the duration of night. And so the fourth watch of the night is gonna be anywhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So they, the disciples on this boat in the middle of a storm are struggling. And they have been struggling for close or upwards of nine hours. Um, I think it's John mentions that they'd only made it about three miles. That was a long time to struggle in a boat with little to no success. And so they had previously seen Jesus calm a storm already, that was in Matthew chapter eight, but Jesus isn't with them. And so they are very reasonably starting to freak out. Uh, Their fear, their fatigue and their discouragement is just really starting to set in. And at this point, Jesus is nowhere in sight and they don't know how they're gonna get through this. And we will see that Jesus's power would sustain them regardless if he is bodily present or not. So whereas before, he needed to be present to kind of calm this storm, but now they know what it would take for Jesus to actually sustain them, even from a distance. So then, Jesus starts walking on water. Um, There isn't really any way around the Greek to try and uh, come up with some sort of solution of like, well, he wasn't really walking on the water. He was walking maybe along the coast of the water and it was shallow water. Not really. Um, It's pretty clear the words on or upon or on top of just how you would be walking on land. That's the same sort of language used. And he is walking on the water. And the disciples are afraid and they think it's a ghost. And if you just, (laughs) this almost seems foolish, but just imagine with me, being on a boat, a very small boat. So like a, I'm picturing like a small rowboat. It's a, obviously more sophisticated than that, but not much more sophisticated than that. A raging storm, and there is something or someone on the water. This sort of a supernatural experience freaked them out because they have obviously no explanation for it. They are probably fearing their lives and could be thinking that they are close to death, And that this very well could be a ghost welcoming them to death the sea was just destroying the disciples journey but it had no effect on christ the fear that was overwhelming the disciples brought no fear to jesus and he says take courage it is i A commentator said it in this way, I loved how they worded it, which was, the familiar voice brought reassurance where sight was insufficient. So all they could hear was just the voice of Jesus and it just brought this overwhelming peace and comfort. A familiar voice, the voice of someone that they had been walking with, living with, doing miracles with, brought this overwhelming peace. And when Jesus says the words, it is I, this is a straight comparison to Yahweh's claim of I am in Exodus to Moses. So back to the burning bush story, when uh, Moses is saying, who, who should I tell the people that's sending me to Pharaoh? Who, who do I tell is, is this person, this God that is sending me? And he says, I am who I am. And so the phrase of it is I, this is just a direct connection. So this is both Jesus claiming his deity, he is saying, you know, the person who said this, I'm actually that same person so many years later, this person you've been waiting for. Um, but then you could also just naturally ask the question, well, who else could be walking on water <laughs> apart from this Jesus that we have been living, living with and seeing these miracles with? And so when Peter asks, Lord, if it is you, command me to walk on the water, Um, I think it is interesting because at first glance, I'm kind of like, okay, okay, Peter. (laughs) You know, like, why are you just throwing this at Jesus? Like, oh, yeah? Well, then ask me to come out on the water. I don't really know why Peter thought that was a good idea. (laughs) I don't want to walk on the water. That doesn't sound interesting to me. Uh, So we don't know. We don't know Peter's intent in saying this. And at first glance, I kind of wonder, well, wouldn't Jesus be like, well, why are you questioning me? But we don't have any indication that Jesus was upset with his question or that Jesus at that moment said, you don't have enough faith for asking this question. Something else happens that Jesus says, you have little faith, but it's not this moment. So I think that kind of welcomes a little bit of uh, an opportunity, if you will, to ask questions. Peter's like, I'm, I'm not actually still sure that this is you. If it is you, then ask me to do this. And I, I think that just gives us some space in our lives when we're a little uncertain. At this moment, Jesus does not get angry or frustrated at the question. All he responds with is, come. A very simple come. And so Peter gets out of the boat and he walks on the water. I know that I have a million questions at this point. How long did it take Peter to get out of the boat? Is he like, oh shoot, you called me on my bluff, now I have to do this? Are the other disciples freaking out? What do you mean, are you gonna walk on the water? Did, did he need a couple of minutes? Is he like, I'm not ready to do this. I just, I need to like psych myself up a little bit. When he stepped out of the boat, Was it immediate? Did did it feel like he was sinking in the water at all? Was it like he was walking on hard ground? None of those details are given to us. Uh, Going back to authorial intent, Matthew didn't care about any of those details. What Matthew cared about was the fact that he got out of the boat, eyes on Jesus, and started walking. I imagine that there's just this very intense level of focus uh, everything else just faded away, and the only thing that mattered was that Peter's eyes were on Jesus. I mean, we don't know how long Peter walked for. Was it a couple of feet? Was it five feet? Was it 10 feet? Was it like 100 yards? No idea. We know that, she, that Peter was probably walked far enough because he walked right up to Jesus, because Jesus grabs him when he starts to sink. But you just wonder how long did his faith allow him to do the unthinkable? To use this authority that had been given to him by Christ to perform miracles, he was sustained by and walking towards the Messiah. That is remarkable. And then we also know that the storm did not stop. There wasn't this crazy, crazy storm, and then Jesus says, I'm, you know, come out, come walk on the water. The storm is quiet, and then it picks up again. The storm is going this entire time. So that is also something interesting to consider. There wasn't any sort of moment where um, there was, it made it easier for Peter to walk out on the boat. The circumstances were just as hard as they were on the boat. But he was able to withstand it because his eyes were fixed on Jesus and it was only when Peter noticed the storm around him that he started to sink. I don't even think it was intentional doubt, any sort of, I don't think Jesus can keep saving me, can keep me afloat. I, I don't think there was any moment where he thought, I doubt Jesus's ability to carry me through this. But it was Peter who allowed his fear of his outside circumstances to overwhelm him. It was when his eyes were taken off of Jesus that that is what started to dictate his response and his reality. And we have another immediately. Immediately Jesus rescued him. The language here indicates that it was right once Peter started to sink that that's when Jesus grabbed him and rescued him. Jesus could have just spoke and saved him. I think it's really special that Jesus physically grabbed him. I mean, from a practical standpoint, that would be very reassuring, (laughs) that someone is physically saving you, but that even just shows how much more uh, relational, I think, the sort of embrace, I'm sure, that that would come when Jesus grabs you and saves you. And it was at this point that Jesus said, oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? When they get back into the boat, the wind stops, The people in the boat worship him and say, you are surely God's son. Uh, John Calvin actually believes that there may have even been more people in the boat, that it wasn't just the disciples. It could have also been sailors and other passages. So these people were just astonished at what they saw. And so normally with this story, we really focus on the fact that Peter failed. You know, you think of Jesus walking on water and you think Peter had this opportunity and he really messed it up. He He didn't believe anymore, and so Jesus had to rescue him. Let's just follow the story and progression of what happened a little bit slower. So we have Peter's faith allows him to walk on the water. He is sustained through this storm. He realizes the outside threats and circumstances coming towards him. The fear overtakes him, and he cries out to the Lord. An immediate rescue of the Lord's powerful and gracious hand is offered to him. And it's in the midst of Peter's doubt and little faith that the Lord rescues him. I think that's a really important moment to capture. It's that in the middle of Peter's doubt, that's when Jesus said, I'm gonna rescue you. He's not punished for his lack of faith, he's rescued despite of it. And it's then that Jesus says, why do you doubt? This reminds me of another person who had some questions for the Lord, Job was tested and lost everything. And his question to God, why? God did not answer his question of why, but instead he answered with his own might and his power. I wanna read a good chunk out of Job for you guys in uh, the Lord's response. I'm going to read it from the message. Now, if you're not familiar with the message, this is really much more of a summary type statement. It's not really a translation, if you will. But I think that based off of this passage, it's very poetic. Uh, The language can be hard to understand at times. And so I want to read this for you guys, and I just hope that you can receive it and um, sit in it for a little bit. Because the context of this is going to be Job is crying out like, what the heck? What the heck is going on? I, I feel like I don't deserve this. This shouldn't be my circumstances. And Yahweh basically says, oh yeah? Do you know who I am? So I want to read this for you guys. It's long. It's going to be on the screen. But I think that the, the length of it, just really kind of like each next verse, it just, it's almost like one more punch in a good way of like, oh yeah, okay, this is the God we serve. So, I'm gonna read it. This is God speaking. Have you ever gotten to the true bottom of things, explored the labyrinth caves of deep ocean? Do you think you know the first thing about death? Do you have one clue regarding death's dark mysteries, and do you have any idea how large this earth is? Speak now, if you even if you have even the beginning of an answer? Do you know where light comes from and where darkness lives so you can take them out by the hand and lead them home when they get lost? Why, of course you know that. You've known them all of your life, grown up in the same neighborhood with them. Have you ever traveled to where snow is made, seen the vault where hail is stockpiled, the arsenals of hail and snow that I keep in readiness for times of trouble and battle and war? Can you find your way to where lightning is launched, or to the place from which the wind blows? Who do you suppose carves canyons for the downpours of rain and charts the route of thunderstorms that bring water to unvisited fields, deserts no one ever lays eyes on, drenching the useless wastelands so they're carpeted with wildflowers and grass? Who do you think is the father of rain and dew, the mother of ice and frost? You don't for a minute imagine these marvels of weather just happen, do you? Can you catch the eye of beautiful Pleiades' sisters or distract Orion from his hunt? Can you get Venus to look your way or get the great bear and her cubs to come out and play? Do you know the first thing about the sky's constellations and how they affect things on Earth? Can you get the attention of the clouds and commission a shower of rain? Can you take charge of lightning bolts and have them report to you for orders? Who do you think gave weather, wisdom to the ibis, and storm savvy to the rooster? Does anyone know enough to number all the clouds or tip over the rain barrels of heaven when the earth is cracked and dry, the ground baked hard as a brick? Can you teach the lioness to stalk her prey and satisfy the appetite of her cubs as they crouch in the den, waiting hungrily in their cave? And who sets out food for the ravens when the young cry to God, fluttering about because they have no food? It goes on and on. That is just one section about God's power and might in the form of the earth. It goes on and on about animals. The passages are, are quite remarkable. And this is the power that controls the wind and the waves. This is the power that made Peter walk on water. Peter, why do you doubt? And so I ask you, friends, the same today. Why do you doubt? I think our passage gives us three great takeaways of how this can apply to our lives. The first one is you started walking in faith, now keep walking in faith. Peter stepped out in faith, he literally stepped out in faith, onto the water, and he walked. The beginning wasn't difficult, or at least We don't know that it was difficult. That wasn't the difficult part in the narrative. In some sense, Peter had the best case scenario. In a very difficult difficult circumstance, he was in the presence of God. In a storm in your life, it would be pretty amazing if you were in the presence of God. But once he stopped walking in faith, that's when he began to sink. So friends, if you have a circumstance right now that is causing you to question things, to wonder, stay focused. Stay focused, keep walking in faith, don't stop. The second takeaway is just because we walk in faith does not mean our circumstances are removed. The storm never stopped. Peter had two options. He can either endure the storm or let the fear of it overtake him. We can walk through the storm. Complete faith in Jesus allowed Peter to do the unthinkable. The Lord is not far from your storm and just because you're walking in faith that does not grant or give you some sort of free pass that the Lord should remove you from the storm. It also doesn't mean that the Lord is not far from your storm. The last point is keep your eyes on Jesus. I think maybe a better question that we can ask ourselves is, how are you keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus right now? Is life causing a casual wandering of your eyes? Maybe it's not a huge storm. Maybe you're like, life is pretty good, but are your eyes fixed on Jesus? What are you focusing on? What distractions are surrounding you pulling your eyes from Jesus? When Jesus went to the mountaintop, he was fixing his eyes on the Father. He knew that he needed that. He knew that he needed to take time, needed to fix his eyes on the Father. He had gone through the tragedy of losing John the Baptist. He needed to fix his eyes on the Father. He knew that he was physically exhausted. He needed to fix his eyes on the Father. How were you fixing your eyes on Jesus? So if you could close your eyes, I'm just going to wrap up this with just some prayers, some reflection. Ponder some things in your own life. In what areas do I need to walk in faith? And in what areas do I need to keep walking in faith? How do I keep walking in faith although my circumstances are still hard? And finally, what practices do I need to do in order to keep my eyes focused on Jesus? Or even better yet, what do I need to stop doing which is keeping me from fixing my eyes on Jesus? Father, we trust you and we believe you. Help our unbelief when we fear the raging storm around us men.